Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. After nine years of keeping his prostate cancer at bay, the drugs were no longer working. The doctors told him his time was nearly up. So Jeff Metcalf dove deep into writing, tasking himself with writing one essay each week for a year. His book, Requiem for the Living, contains the best of the resulting 52 essays by an author who continues to defy his medical prognosis. The essays form a memoir of sorts, recounting good times and critical moments from Metcalf's life. He does not describe a life defined by cancer, but writes to discover what his life has been, who he's become, and what he's learned along the way. Jeff Metcalf is a professor of English at University of Utah. He's been the recipient of numerous awards, and uh, his plays have been widely staged. They include A Slight Discomfort, which has been touring the United States and Europe for the past several years and is about his experiences with, uh, with cancer. He lives in uh, Salt Lake City with his wife and two children, and he appeared uh, recently as part of Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Jeff Metcalf, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be on it. We appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us. I wonder if uh, immediately I'd hopefully have your book with you. I do. And uh, I would love for you to, uh, as we start here, uh, just uh, read me uh, the first page. I and, would be happy to. And uh, it's, it's a chapter called The Killing Fields. First page and then over the, the to complete the paragraph, the second page. I'm hell-bent on writing an essay for a year. It's straightforward enough, and I need this sort of discipline right now. I'm dealing with an aggressive form of prostate cancer, and the drugs I've been administered over the past nine years have lost their potency. They've done a good job of keeping the cancer cells at bay, but the rodeo is over. In the course of the nine years since my diagnosis, I've been cut open had my prostate removed, discovered that the cancer cells had spilled outside the margin, spent eight weeks in radiation, and when that procedure wasn't successful, I began a series of Lupron injections backed up with Cassidex Kicker and Zytiga. Lupron floods my body with female hormones, which suppress the development of testosterone, a necessary component for the cancer cells to survive. My effects have been hot flashes, loss of muscle tone, decreased libido, depression, loss of body hair, mood swings, frequent insomnia, and the retention of water. Essentially, my body has no idea what it is or how to act, and it's confusing. It's also funny, and humor counts against cancer, trust me. My blood draws have become increasingly more frequent because my PSA continues to rise. The climate has changed. There's less small chat, something I've always enjoyed on my frequent visits to the hospital. I've known these nurses and doctors for several years now. What they don't want to say is this. You have more time behind you than you do in front of you. I know this, and I understand it very well. I also know what comes next. There are a few medical choices for me, but none of them are pleasant. So you get the word uh, the, the the drugs have been working. Now you get the word they're not working anymore. Um, yes. uh, what's what are the emotions? I can imagine scared, witless. I can imagine myself in that in that position. What what are their emotions? Well, you know it's interesting because I've I've been down this road when I was diagnosed some ten years ago. Um, I had sort of a I think it was a thirty percent chance of making it three years. And I thought to myself, well, this just doesn't work for me. I'm busy, and I love being above ground. So I've become this vociferous advocate in the health system for my own health. 
Um, I'm always, you know, I just saw the doctor about four weeks ago, and my numbers have gone up again, and and uh, I'm back on another protocol. And I think after this, after ten years of sort of dealing with this, you know, I'm I'm still at a loss for words. I think the thing is to get up every single day and and make those days count for you. Am I afraid? Of course I am. Um, but you know, none of us really knows how this rodeo is going to turn out. So I, I plan on staying in the game as long as I possibly can. So you're, it, it sounds like you just said no. Uh, yeah. Not yet. No, I, I agree. It's, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I think part of, you know, the fact that I've been able to survive this is I'm just a stubborn little Irishman. I'm sorry, this doesn't work for me. Not now. I'll know when I'm ready. Hmm. Now, of course, uh, sometimes that wouldn't work. Uh, other people have, have had that attitude. It didn't, didn't work for them. Um, but I, I imagine, I guess you would say to, to other people facing this, that uh, it, it's a good attitude to have? Absolutely. You know, here's the thing. I, I uh, You know, for, it's, the glass is either half full or half empty. And for me, it's always been half full. And, you know, I, I know men who were diagnosed at the same time I was, um, and their numbers were actually better, and uh, two of them passed away in the last month. And I, I can't help but think, you know, mental attitude has a lot to do with it. And I think there's some science behind this. Hmm. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that half-full glass, and uh, I continue to do so throughout this uh, entire journey. It was, I was interested to read, and you just said it uh, briefly here, uh, you have to be assertive battling the system. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your battles with healthcare system. In fact, you you fired your doctor, or at least you came to a parting of the ways. Yeah, this is, <laughs> that's a very nice way to say it. I think, um, you know, when I started on this thing, I, I think it was like every other person in this system, you know, you you hear this diagnosis and you think, oh, my God, I've got, you know, two years, maybe three years to live. And then I thought, who makes up the rules here? And, uh, you know, when this, this, is, this is actually also in the play, but there was a scene where a doctor came in who was filling in for another doctor and said, good morning, Mr. Metcalf. You know, my name is Dr. X, and you have 30% chance of making it two years. And I just went, I went over the top, and I said, who, who do you think you're talking to, you know? And get my name right. My first name is actually William, but I don't go by that. So oftentimes, Tom, when I'm, you know, sitting in a, in a hospital waiting room and they call William Metcalf, I'm looking around to see where this guy is, and then realize they're talking about me. And I said, go outside this room, knock on the door, and get my name right, and let's start from there. <laughs> and so we had quite a discourse, and uh, he, you know, told me that he was in fact the doctor and uh, practiced medicine. I told him, in fact, I was a person who was the patient and wanted to live as long as I possibly could, so we sort of parted ways. <laughs> and uh, there's some great doctors, and the Huntsman Cancer Center is a terrific place to be. So I've got terrific doctors there, but I have pushed the buttons and pushed the boundaries on this, and I highly recommend it. It's almost a full-time job um, to make your way through the medical system, the labyrinth of you know, insurance protocols uh, that seem to work oftentimes more in favor of insurance companies than they do of the patient. Hmm. I I just imagine the doctors seeing you coming, you know. We, 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 got, we, got, we got Metcalf coming today. That's um, exactly what happened. Yeah. I had to push for this particular procedure, and uh, 
and then had to go in front of the tumor board and argue the case. And I had done my homework, and uh, then they approved it. I had to go through the insurance company to get this particular operation that was a very delicate operation um, approved on insurance. And then they said the difficulty, of course, we'll find a doctor. Well, it just so happened that the doctor that pioneered this technology uh, is from Salt Lake. And I, I made an appointment with him. And as he came in the office early in the morning, I said, I'm Jeff Metcalf. And he said, I know who you are. And I said, oh, is that good or bad? And he just started laughing. He said, no, no, I, we, we know who you are. Hmm. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, this is a, I've got this reputation, but um, if that's what it takes... That's what it takes. So assertiveness, and and you you, you got to take control of of your own health care. Uh, also, humor. You mentioned humor is important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the interesting thing was when I I've kept journals for years, and when I was diagnosed, I decided that cancer didn't belong in the personal journeys that were full of ideas for short stories and plays and reflections on my teaching life and, you know, great restaurants. It's always about food for me. And uh, so I kept a separate journal for um, my notes on cancer. And uh, I, you know, listen, I got to tell you something. Men don't talk to each other. You know, women get it a lot sooner than men. They know how to talk to each other. And I didn't tell my wife that I was diagnosed which was one of the greatest mistakes of my married life, and trust me, there have been many. And uh, so I kept this journal, and, uh, you know, it was pretty dark, but then I'd see these just sort of moments of light and humor, and I thought, I think I have something there. I was thinking about, you know, things as simple as, you know, the, the medical robes that you put on when you're in a hospital. I don't care how you tie them. Certain parts of your anatomy always hang out, and I... And I thought, you know, if I could design a gown that could close properly, I could retire from teaching and make a million dollars. So anyway, this became sort of this thing where I looked for humor in it. And at the end of it, you know, I thought, I think I have at least a couple of short stories from this, which ultimately turned into the play A Slight Discomfort. Mm. Um, and you, uh, I'll have you a little later in the program read a passage uh, talking about uh, audiences' reaction to a slight discovery. You're very frank in in the play about the, about the whole experience. Um, I, I wonder, going back to the the fact that you didn't talk much to your wife about this, which I think, yes, as you say, is a typical reaction from a man. Um, what I don't know what. What what is that? What uh, because I recognize it as a man. I recognize that. I I, I don't know. Is it we're socialized to do that? Is that uh, because women talk to each other? And I think it's cathartic and it helps. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Sort of two parts to the answer here, Tom. Um, our daughter was getting ready to head off to study in in Italy in Florence right at this time, and I thought, you know, if I mention anything to my wife. And my daughter, our daughter, hears the word cancer. She might not go, and I didn't want that to happen. And I was, I was headed off to teach in France and Croatia, and I thought during that time my wife and son would be taking our daughter to New York to send her off on this great adventure. And when they came home, I would tell my wife, and that was just incredibly stupid. And so when she came back, I cooked a great deal from a great dinner for my wife and my son, John. And uh, my wife noticed that I wasn't eating and said, you know, you're not eating anything. And I I said, I I need to talk to you about something. 
and it's very serious. And my wife said, you're not leaving us, are you? And I went, oh, God, no, I'm not stupid. No, I just have to go in for a biopsy tomorrow, and I can't, I can't, uh, I can't eat. And she said, you know, the physical was a month ago, Jeff. And I said, I, yeah, I know, I just, my PSA numbers were high. And she said, do you, are you telling me you have cancer? And it just came completely unglued. And, and she said, you know, we don't do that to each other. So I like to think I did the right thing. I think it would have been smarter for me to put it up front because it left them sort of in a, uh, a tenuous position. And uh, so anyway, you know, I, I spilled my guts out. And there were so many times I wanted to tell her that. And, uh, you know, if I had to do it all over again, Tom, I would I would have told her sooner. And she said, well, what do you think Bailey will think now? And I said, I don't know. It just wasn't well thought out. The interesting thing is, once I wrote this play, I have had emails since this play took off about eight years ago on the road from men who I know that had prostate cancer that never said anything. And, and it it sort of um, was an awakening for me. And I thought, you know what, I think this might be the most significant thing I've ever done was put this play out in, in the universe. So I learned and I became, in many ways, I guess I've, I've become a poster boy for uh, prostate cancer. I wanted to write a different play where I was like a character that was six foot four with full head of blonde hair and piercing <laughs> right. blue eyes. Yes. Unfortunately, I'm a short, stocky, bald-headed guy <laughs> who has written a comedy about cancer, which almost sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but but you know, in, important to important to explore the reality, right? With, yes, with, with humor and, and everything else. Maybe when the movie comes out, you know, that'll be cast <laughs> cast by a very handsome, uh, you know, Hollywood actor. No, that's, I, you know, Tom, you're a genius. You should be, you should be a casting agent. <laughs> We've got Jeff Metcalf on the program today. Um, after nine years of keeping his prostate cancer at bay, the drugs were no longer working. Doctor told him his time was nearly up. So Jeff Metcalf dove into writing. Tasked himself with writing one essay each week for a year. His new book is the result. Requiem for the Living contains the best of resulting 52 essays. Uh, following a break, we'll ask him why writing. I guess if you're a writer, you write, right? But uh, it wouldn't have uh, immediately been uh, the, the course of action for most of us when facing the end of our life. And uh, we'll ask him what he, what he found. Uh, he is uh, beating uh, so far his prognosis, and uh, that's great. Uh, his play is has been quite popular uh, touring the country. Slight discomfort, which is about his experiences uh, with prostate cancer. Uh, he's a professor of English at University of Utah. This book is out from uh, U of U uh, Press. We'll have more with Jeff Metcalf following this break, and we're opening the phone lines. If you would like to join this conversation, hope that you will. You can join us by email. To Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Kayenta Arts Foundation, transforming walkways at the Rock, Stars, and Wildlife 2015 Street Painting Festival. Saturday, April 25th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, April 26th, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Ivins. Includes live music and food. Details at CayentaArtsFoundation.org. The Fusion Theater Project at USU and Utah Public Radio are presenting Playing Shortly, short plays on the radio, featuring new works by American playwrights performed on stage in front of a live audience. This week's program features a comedy by Seth Freeman called The High Road. It's about life in the fast lane as a stressed-out driver attempts to replace road rage with positivity. 
even as he meets Road Bump after Road Bump. Bozo! You go all psycho on me. Psycho? Up yours too! I'm like the most normal guy in the world. Not in a car. You become negative about everything. No, no, I'm not negative. You're being negative now. Something happens in a car, you can't be any other way. I couldn't be what way? Not negative. That's absurd. See? We invite you to gather around the radio this Friday night at 8.30. We're playing shortly, short plays on the radio. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation, originally airing in November of 2014. You can still comment on this show at upraxcess at gmail.com or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have with us today uh, Jeff Metcalf. He's a professor of English at University of Utah. It's written a new book. It's called Requiem for the Living. Um, and it's the result of a task that uh, he set for himself uh, when he was informed that his uh, prostate cancer was not responding anymore to drugs. Prognosis was uh, looking bleak. Uh, his goal, write an essay a week for a year. And uh, this book, Requiem for the Living, contains the best of the resulting 52 essays. Jeff Metcalf's uh, play, called A Slight Discomfort, has been well-received. So uh, before I have you read this passage about sitting in the audience, uh, experiencing your play with the audience, talking about death as well there, you you take it head-on, there's some humor there. Uh, Why why this this task? Where did this come from? Write an essay a week for a year. Boy, that's a good question, and if I I could answer that... (laughs) Here's the thing. I've been involved in, in writers' conferences and teaching writing for years, and I, you know, I was talking about staying in the room and writing the most difficult things, the things closest to the bone. And I thought, you know, it was really, you know, I kind of feel the press of time, and and in many ways, I think that is a gift that has made me really focus in the last few years and sort of prioritize what I want to try to get written. Um, with the time that I have left. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to try something out. I'm, I'm going to ch- challenge myself to write an essay a week, which is absolutely insane. You know, if you've got four essays published at any university, you'd probably become the department chair. And so I wrote 52 essays, and all of them, the only requirement I had for myself was to to follow my instinct and write whatever came into my mind. And so, the you know, the first essay might have been from 1963, followed by an essay in 1999, followed by an essay. So it made no sense when I was done. Um, but I thought maybe I had something. So I submitted it to the Utah Arts Council original uh, writing competition. And I actually won the first place prize for it. And I'm not sure they were reading the same book. But when I looked at the judges' notes, I thought, wow, you know, maybe I have something here. And then the U-Press agreed to publish it. But since then, you know, I dropped a number of the essays and then reshaped them in sort of um, a series of suites, very much like a musical score. Hmm. What, what did you learn? You, it's interesting, I, near the back of the book, <clears throat> you talk about uh, you're interested in what you left out. Yeah. 
great question. I mean, I've, I have had an absolutely marvelous life. And, you know, I, w- I was very surprised in sort of when I was done with this project. I took a couple of weeks off and, and just fished to get back in the scene. And I thought, you know, how did these essays, I mean, what was the river's teeth of these essays that made me write them? And how did I miss things, you know, or not spend much time with the exception of two essays on my teaching career, which has been my love. I've been at this 40-some-odd years, which is which is actually longer than some of the countries that are in existence now. And uh, so I, I have no idea. I was, I was sort of puzzled by it. I didn't write much about being with the circus. I didn't write you know, much about education. I, I, I seem to have really protected my family in many ways. So I think that maybe, you know, and I'd, I'd like to do another collection of essays um, that sort of pick up some of these things. And I thought maybe the reason I didn't get there, because, you know, education for me, I was one of the founders of an alternative school here in my 20s, and I think that perhaps those things are separate books. Hmm. I wonder if I could have you uh, read this, 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 this uh, page uh, 225, uh, and maybe begin with uh, the poem over on uh, the bottom of 224. Yeah. Um, uh, and you all know... Um, Ken Brewer, who's a former Utah Poet Laureate, who was on the faculty at Utah State. And we were very good friends, and uh, when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, we corresponded back and forth, and I was, he knew I had, had, um, had cancer, and I was you know, talking to him about the idea of death, because he wrote this amazing poem called The Visit. And I'd like to read that first. Um, Death sits on the side of my bed, skirt hiked to the hairline, says, Hi, handsome, dance with me? No thanks, I say, not yet. I'm just a man with pancreatic cancer, not a corpse. Besides, I'm married. Death stands and straightens his skirt. I'll be back, marriage or not. So I took Ken's advice and stuck death into the one-man play a slight discomfort that I'd been commissioned to write for the Salt Lake Acting Company. That way, I could keep my eye on the dream. The play is about my journey through cancer, and it's extremely difficult for me to watch. I see myself on stage struggling with my own mortality while battling himself as much as he does the cancer. I see a man who has attempted to shield his family from the inevitable, and in doing so has done just the opposite. But it's just a play, and it ends on a positive and hopeful note. But I know the truth, and I still conceal it from my family and myself. The play no longer belongs to me. Deva's character works. It always draws an uncomfortable laugh from the audience in its first appearance. But by the second appearance, toward the end of the play, the audience is at full attention. They are present and inside the play, translating this moment in the theater into a personal and familiar narrative of their own experience. My character, the onstage Jeff, has become somebody close to them. The play is no longer about prostate cancer. It's about the human condition, about wanting to be treated with dignity and respect. We are not alone. We are not alone. Therein, I believe, lies the success of the play. 
Everybody leaves the theater, the package is tidied up, and we go home wanting to love what is close to us. No matter in what city we perform the play, I stay after the curtain drops and the crowd leaves. I wait until the lights in the house are turned off just to make certain there are no shadows about. I turn my back on death without looking at my card, and I can't be so reckless again. It's just a matter of time. Mm. So I think a, a person like yourself, uh, who I suppose has to, has to think about death in a more concrete way than a lot of us. Um, I, I don't know if you see things differently. You see it more up close. We, we don't like thinking about death, I think. I agree. I think, I think one becomes uh, oh, heightened to the sense of time. Um, no, you're right. I mean, none of us knows that you know what will happen. I, yeah, now, there's an essay in there called Split Second, where I was driving back from a fishing trip, talking with a friend after having some sort of bad news about you know my numbers, and two deer jumped on the freeway, and uh, somehow I was able to split in between them, and I was thinking it could have ended right there. I mean, had we hit either one of the deer. Um, our car would have rolled down a berm and who knows what would have happened. So I'm attentive. Mm-hmm. And death as a character was very, very interesting to me. Um, and you mentioned something earlier that I, that I think is important. You know, it's it's pretty um, interesting when I've done medical conferences and, uh, you know, theaters around the country when they ask about the play. So it's a play about cancer, right? Said, yes, it is. And, and uh so it's kind of funny? I said, yeah. Said, well, there's nothing funny about cancer. And I said, well, you have to have a sense of humor. And uh, I actually have cancer. And that changes the conversation. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I can tell at the beginning of the play in the first five minutes whether it's going to work or not. Because I have to give the audience permission to laugh. And it's like, come see this play. And there's kind of an opening line in the front end of the play. And if I get a chuckle, I know I'm surfing that play, and it's beautiful. And I'm actually performing the play myself now, which is very interesting. I'm much more comfortable on the stage, Tom, than I am in the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see that. It's a much different experience. It absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, I, I want, you talk about this split-second experience, and, and I, you know, a lot of us have had that. Uh, I have a couple of experiences where you know, if something happened just a split-second different, I, I wouldn't be here. But, uh, and for, I guess, a few days, I, I was sort of heightened awareness and, and, and thinking deeply, I guess, about life and death. And then you, then you get back to life. You get back to the regular routine. Yes. Uh, I wonder if it's different for someone like you who's, who's got this drip, drip, drip of, you know, you, yeah, you wake you know, up every morning, prostate question. cancer. And what, I have to think of, of this, you know, aggressive you know, prostate cancer, I have to think of it as a chronic disease. And I have to think that there is hope on the far side of hope. Um, because if I think, I think a long time ago I decided, my God, if I think this is a death sentence, I'm done. So I try to stay in the seam, and I really think I do a pretty good job of keeping it out of my daily life. Um, and I think that has been one of the great um gifts that I've discovered from this disease. You know, it can intrude on my day-to-day life. I keep doing the things I love to do most. 
I love to teach. I mean, I wake up every morning, I think, how lucky am I to be doing something I love? Um, I've got a terrific family, a wonderful group of friends, and I try to keep fully engaged in the realm of that world as opposed to thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I've got to go in and, and get another CT scan or an MRI. And the only place, Tom, that I really have a difficult time that I sort of go dark is the, you know, week before I go in for a series of, you know, scans, tests, and blood draws. And I was trying to, I was, I was looking at some notes that I had made about this, and it, what I understand is the everything that happens before I go in for the test has happened. And everything that will be, or what the outcome of these tests are, you know, is in the future. And it's that 24-hour space between the test and the delivery of the results that is so incredibly dark. It's like a deep black hole for me. And then, you know, when I get the prognosis, then I kind of have to, you know, revisit this and think of a way to get through this. And I had one of those experiences. You know, I, I went in to see the doctor a month ago, said your PSA has tripled, your your tumors on your lymph nodes have doubled in size. And after that, I kind of heard blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I looked at my notes, I mean, I thought, you know, I've done this so many times, I know better, but hearing something like that is an you know, a, a, a call to an awareness of, of what your body is doing, which, which seems very disingenuous to me. It's like, are we talking about the same person? I feel great. And then when I got home and looked at my notes, one of the things I noticed and the thing, the sort of lifeline that I grasped onto was that the disease had not yet become metastatic. And that is remarkable uh, after 10 years. And so that's what I hold on and to begin to build with that. You know, after that conversation and after that acknowledgement of my own notes. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jeff Metcalf. He's a professor of English at University of Utah. He's the recipient of Nubis Awards, the Outstanding Faculty Award, National Council uh, Teachers of English Outstanding Teacher Award, Writers at Work Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, he has a play out, been well received and touring, and he now performs in a slight discomfort about his experiences with uh, prostate cancer. And uh, his book, out from University of Utah Press, is Requiem for the Living, a memoir. Uh, when the uh, drugs no longer were working, he got a grim prognosis. Uh, he uh, set himself a task, writing one essay each week for a year. And uh, this book uh, contains the best of the resulting 52 essays. Uh, he continues to defy his uh, prognosis, uh, which is uh, great news. And uh, we uh, have him for the hour here. You, If you'd like to join the conversation, email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah uh, Public Radio. Uh, I want to get your uh, reaction, Jeff Metcalf, to uh, something that caught my eye. This is from the Washington Post. And uh, this is Leah Nurek. She is uh, a CEO of a, of a marketing group, Gabriel Marketing Group. And, and more, more apropos to the discussion, she's a breast cancer survivor. In her 30s, I think she says, she was diagnosed with cancer in both breasts. I just want to read, uh, and the uh, title of the article, her op-ed piece, is, is provocative. She says, I survived breast cancer, but I hate Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Let me just read uh, part of this paragraph, get your reaction. She says, the me that survived that tortuous 16 months is not the same me that existed before cancer. I discovered that those dark, deep trenches of despair you read about are truly real. 
and uh, skipping down, I grew up and realized that evil and darkness truly exist. It can knock on your door at any time. In short, there's no more black and white. Cancer gives you gray. So why pink ribbons, pink bracelets, etc., etc.? She goes on to say that uh, the, this uh, this effort does raise awareness and probably has increased uh, uh, quite a bit the money flowing into uh, the cure for cancer. Um, but for the reasons she outlined, she's she's not on board with the sold what she calls the cult of pink. I wonder what your feelings are. <laughs> I know exactly what she's saying. I mean, you know, th- th- it's it's interesting because um, you know I hope that this uh, the play of slight discomfort calls awareness to uh, men. It's actually a challenge to them to take you know take interest in their own health. And uh, you know, when I was diagnosed, I didn't go through the the sort of, you know, steps of denial and anger. I mean, I kind of thought, okay, well, why not me? I mean, why do I have any ambassadorship to this? And, you know, there were many prostate forums and men's groups to join, and I, I felt like, you know, I don't think I need that sort of thing. And, you know, I think what, what, she, what Gabriel, is that her name? Sorry. Uh, Leah Nurek. Oh, Leonora. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think what she's saying, I think I understand what she's saying. Like, I don't want to play this game, and I do understand that, you know, my op-ed piece might help out in some way, but um, it's nothing to celebrate, and I, I understand what she's saying completely. I, I read this text that I think I referred to in there called Sacred Illness, and it was two people talking about cancer, saying that cancer has been a great teacher, you know, has informed me and taught me how to... Here's how I feel, and I think this is how she feels. I don't want cancer in my body. It's not a friend to me. I want to stomp it and crush it. And I hope what I do in terms of this play raises awareness. It's a poorly funded research end of the medical profession. It's the second largest killer um, uh, for men, uh, in, 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 and it has very little research funding. So I'm about I'm I differ from her in the sense that I I would love to see more money pour into research for this, and you know if if I hang around long enough, you know I'm I'm here because of some you know uh, meta, medical clinical trials and tests that were developed you know five years ago that that had I not been on these I wouldn't be here so. I believe in raising funds for it. I understand completely what she's saying. Mm. You know, I think also what she's saying, and I feel the same way, is I don't want to be defined by my cancer. I just don't. You know, it sort of extracts from the the Jeff Metcalf that has, you know, done some pretty decent things in his life, and I don't want to be interrupted by that. Uh, yeah, I think she's uh, kind of conflicted because she does say she realizes that this uh, all the, the pink ribbons and everything do raise awareness and therefore bring money in. Uh, one of the things she and you've made a bit of reference to this. Uh, there are a lot of you know we we praise cancer survivors. You're so strong. You're a hero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's there's this idea, that, including from from uh, I think a lot of cancer survivors that you know I, I learned a lot from the cancer. And you, you, you push back a, a little bit on that, I think. Have I learned a lot? Yeah, I've learned numerous things, but, but I don't want to celebrate, and, and maybe this is this difference, I don't want to celebrate cancer in any way. I want to eradicate it. I remember before I had a radical prostatectomy, my doctor said, you know, I want you to watch this film, and it showed, you know, men 
you know, with their families coming to the forefront and saying, you know, after I was diagnosed, I I took time to spend more time with my family, and I learned to smell the roses, and I thought, this is pathetic. So I went to my doctor, I said, if you really want me to watch this, I'll need a bottle of wine and probably some smoked salmon. I said, I'm already there. I've never wasted a day in my life. I'm deeply engaged, and I thought, isn't this an interesting way to think of cancer? I just don't think of it that way. We're going to take another break. When we come back, more with Jeff Metcalf. The memoir is A Requiem for the Living, and uh, his play is out there. It's called A Slight Discomfort. He's a professor of English at University of Utah. This is out from University of Utah Press. Uh, More following the break. When water is left alone, it makes a mess. It backs up into wetlands. Rivers overflow their banks. Mud and silt builds up. New channels open up. But a fluvial geomorphologist, someone who studies how rivers and streams shape the land, told me that that mess is what rivers need to be functional. Messiness matters, he said. I'm Jennifer Pemberton. This week on The Source, we'll meet some of the people who've been responsible for cleaning up rivers, and I don't mean by picking up trash. I mean the state and federal agencies responsible for controlling water, for making sure it doesn't slow down or back up, that it gets to where we need it as efficiently as possible. We'll also meet people who appreciate the messiness of streams in their natural states. It's that messiness that creates great habitat for fish and birds and a host of other ecosystem benefits. And we'll meet the creatures that mess up watersheds in the best possible way. Beavers and Dams on The Source, this week, Friday, 9 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. When you support UPR as a sponsoring business, it makes a statement that this programming is important to you. UPR listeners appreciate our underwriters and often make a point of supporting them. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. That's 435-797-3215. Thank you. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation, originally airing in November of 2014. You can still comment on this show at upraxcess at gmail.com or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Jeff Metcalf. He is author of a new memoir, Requiem for the Living. When his doctors told him the drugs were no longer keeping his prostate cancer at bay, the prognosis was grim. Uh, Not only did he uh, continue to be very assertive in his medical care, he uh, fired his doctor and uh, uh, things he's been doing in the medical uh, profession been doing have been have helped he's uh, defied his prognosis but uh, what he says was truly insane Uh, this is his quote i've survived this memoir he says cancer is easy but writing an essay uh, every single week for a full year is insane that's exactly the uh, project he set out for himself requiem for the living is uh, the result uh jeff metcalf i wonder if you could (laughs) talk a bit about that Uh, you have to be a writer i guess to to uh to know how truly insane that is but an essay a week for a year (laughs) what was i thinking tom oh my gosh i'll tell you what you know it was it was very interesting I, i i can't tell you how many times i looked in the mirror and said what are you doing? What are you thinking? And uh, then I had I had this one little essay in there, and I I kind of you know I kind of thought about how did I actually get involved in writing? It was it was uh, 
it was in, in elementary school, and uh, we we had this wonderful teacher that I actually hated at the time, and I don't know if if I'm indebted to her for sort of a writing career, but uh, her name was Mrs. De Harris, and we used to have pen pals. I was living in Holland at the time. We had pen pals in, in England, and we got to correspond with them, and then I got to be the class um, scribe, so I got to write the class letter, and um, I would write these fabulous lies about fighting gorillas and, uh, you know, fighting off cannibals and socking polar bears dead, and uh, that was that was the impetus for me. So every time that I, 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 I thought I'm going to throw in the towel, I had to think about the pleasure that I got as a young kid writing, and I stayed on the task. Hmm. <laughs> I want to get into uh, talking about some of your life, very interesting. It's, it sounds like you have a very interesting family. Um, oh, I did. Uh, I want to start with the decision to go to Holland. You're in Staten Island, I think, living with your... Well, at first you live with your grandparents. Then you get your own house. And then your dad gets this opportunity to, uh, to you know, to, from his company to, to go to, to go to Holland. And is this true? This was decided by a coin toss? Absolutely. Uh, my mother, Mary, my mom was just... I think I got a, a great deal of my curiosity about life. We moved from a one-bedroom tenement apartment, um, a total of seven of us, my two grandparents and the five Metcalfs, to a house, and we're in the house less than a week when my dad had this amazing job offer, which would require us to um, leave New York and, and move to Holland. And it was, you know, it was a real difficult decision for them. And finally, my mom said, Jack, let's just flip a coin. And she flipped a coin, and she said, we're going to Holland. And it was, we had no idea as kids where Holland was, except my sister. My sister was one of those truly brilliant and is a brilliant woman. And she actually is a sister. I wouldn't admit this in public, but she did know everything. <laughs> and she explained to my brother and myself that yeah, Holland was also referred to as the Netherlands, and that people there wore wooden shoes and ate herring, and that was about all I needed to hear to realize I didn't want to go at all, so I tried to run away. But we did move there, and it was phenomenal. Mm. We moved from a pretty uh, low-income area to uh, aristocratic living in Holland in the ambassador's section of Den Haag. Mm. So I'm so glad it came up heads. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just amazing. It's a spirit of adventure, I guess. That you that, it really that you is. Had. Uh, tell me about your your sister. There, and tell me about the. There's an there's an essay in the book uh, <laughs> where where you and your sister you give your sister some rebuttal time, uh, and you talk about this photograph. Oh yes. So, I, my job is uh, the second child. Uh, my sister's eleven months older than I am. My job, as I saw it, was try to kill my sister uh, so I would be, you know, the eldest child. And my sister's job, in turn, was to try to eradicate me from the universe, and we worked on it. And uh, there was a photograph, a wonderful photograph that we found in some black-and-white photos that my parents had, had kept, and we'd never seen them until my my mother passed away, my father passed away a number of years ago, and, and it's this photograph of us standing in our yard in Holland, and I have I have my arm around my sister, and I have this very, very cool um, bomber jacket on that was given to me by my uncle, uh, who was in Strategic Air Command in Germany, and my sister has a very stupid linen hat on, and 
and I'm looking up at the sky, imploring the gods to rescue me from having to put my arm around my sister. My mom wanted to get a photograph and send it to Bill, Uncle Bill, and say thank you for the gifts. And I had never noticed it until I looked at my sister, and she looked like she didn't want me to have my arm around her, which was incredulous to me. I knew I was getting cooties from touching her, but at the same time, I couldn't believe that she wouldn't want to have her brother's arm around her. So I began this essay, and I thought, this would, this would only be fair to give her equal rebuttal time, and I did, and it's actually one of my favorite essays in the collection called Family Album or 12 Steps to Recovery. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a boy, it, it wouldn't enter your mind that your sister had equal feelings of distaste for you, I guess. Oh, absolutely, you're yeah. right. And it still is a surprise to me, yeah. <laughs> although although we are very close. And uh, I joined a circus in the ninth grade, or uh, actually it wasn't even a circus, it was a carnival. And my sister got bought even by um, putting her underwear in my duffel bag when I took off. So when I got to the circus in the first night when I was taking out my clothes and setting up a, a place to sleep on the ground, holy sky, so they go, nice underwear, kid. And I'm thinking, oh my God, she's still at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the best. You're 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 never so close or or, or so pained by family, except by family members. I wonder if you tell me there's another scene that just uh, just really gives an insight into you. Um, you're, I think you, the family had moved to, is it Saudi Arabia or, yes. and, uh, and so you're in a, in a theater, I guess technically this is not allowed, but, uh, you're in it with a group of kids. You're getting confirmed, right? It's this yes. Catholic church. Yeah. And the bishop is there. Tell me what happened there. Well, it was really interesting. I, I just never turned uh, professional. And I had done my catechism, and uh, we had to practice uh, practice and hold services in a theater because in the day we were living in Saudi Arabia, the only religion allowed there was Islam, the religion of Islam. And uh, done my catechism, I'm standing on the stage, and all I had to do was walk across the stage, genuflect, mention my patron saint's name, kiss the bishop's ring, and I would be confirmed and I had this epiphany I just thought I can't do this and so I saw my family in the front row all scrubbed and you know all I had to do is walk across and I walked across the stage and you know waved to the bishop and walked out the back of the theater and uh, the minute I did that I was pretty certain I was going to go to hell and pretty certain my family wouldn't talk to me and the hell aspect of it, I'm not certain yet, but I think of Twain, who was asked once, you know, when you die, do you think you'll go to heaven or hell? And he said, I'd love to go to heaven for the scenery, but hell for the company. And I think I sort of subscribed to that theory. So anyway, it was, uh, it was a real transformation for me. And uh, I, I uh, like to consider myself a man of many religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's many more, uh, a lot of fun stories in 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 the book. Uh, we're we're almost out of time. I want to close uh, here. Th- this idea you uh, we talked about a little earlier in the hour. We just have a couple minutes left for this. The, the fact that you're you're interested, and I think we're interested in the, the fact that you chose this and you didn't choose that. Um, 
and through that, I think you used the word you're, you're reliving, you know, with, with that dash. You're reliving as you, as you sift through your life and choose this and not that and think about that. That's one of the powerful things about writing, right? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I put the work aside and didn't look at it for quite some time and, and picked it up. And I thought, you know, this is really a story not so much about, you know, the end result, but the process of getting there. And I think of Plato and the examination of oneself as he did in the in, in essay about the cave. And I, I realize, and I think the greatest gift of writing this was I have lived a wonderful life and a well-examined life. And I think that's probably all one can say in the very end of this, you know, that, you know, you know my life has been rich and I have no regrets, except that I never kissed Kathy Snedder in the seventh grade. And that's a pretty good life. Isn't <laughs> that, it? That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Um, <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff. Tom, thank you so much. And I'm a former Aggie and was up there this weekend and hoping to come in to do this interview in person. But I tell you what, my heart still lives, part of my heart still lives in Logan. Well, we'll, we'll, you, we'll still claim you. Uh, Jeff Metcalf is a professor of English at uh, University of Utah. His memoir, Requiem for the Living, is out, and the play is out, A Slight Discomfort. In fact, that's a good place to learn more about him, uh, slightdiscomfort.com. Um, and uh, he's been our guest for the, day, for the day. Thanks for listening today. Today's broadcast of Access Utah is an encore presentation, originally airing in November of 2014. You can still comment on this show at upraxcess at gmail.com or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. Americans love their entertainment, but how far would you travel for a bit of fun? This week, learn why a music club on Ogden's 25th Street became a place worth traveling to. Stay tuned. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The rousing nightlife of cafes and clubs of the mid-20th century conjures nostalgia and images of carefree, happy times. But what if you were African-American? Laws segregating people based on race, restricted access to school and work, separated communities and affected movement between them, and even interfered with the simple American pastime of having fun. Salt Lake hotels, eateries, and other public places excluded people on the basis of race, with white-owned services often barred to black people. Not so at number 127 25th Street in Ogden, home to the Porters and Waiters Club. This African-American establishment opened in the early 1900s and catered to African-American porters and stewards who worked on the Union Pacific Railroad line. It was a place for them to stay overnight or simply enjoy the club-like atmosphere. The Porters and Waiters Club was also segregated. It allowed African-Americans only. If white people entered, they were kindly directed to the white establishments on 25th Street, in turn, white establishments would direct African-Americans to porters and waiters. Being so close to the Union Pacific Railroad Depot, porters and waiters, and Ogden in general, obtained the reputation as a destination for African-Americans looking to escape segregation in Salt Lake. 
Musicians such as Louis Armstrong, Fats Domino, and Duke Ellington entertained white audiences in Salt Lake, but were then denied access to the clubs where they played. So those musicians, and others like them, would catch the train to Ogden to visit the Porters and Waiters Club. The strict segregation of black and white eased slightly in the late 1940s after the war. The now very popular Porters and Waiters Club was known for its spectacular entertainment and opened up to anyone eager to enjoy the talents of jazz greats like local legend Joe McQueen. For African Americans living in a time when inherent rights were denied, including access to simple entertainment, Ogden's Porters and Waiters Club was definitely worth the trip. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Congratulations to graduates at Utah State University regional campuses, including Brigham City, Tooele, USU Basin, Richfield, and Moab. UPR congratulates all graduates at USU regional campuses on their accomplishments and wishes them all the best. On the next Humankind, life is a banquet. And the tragedy is that most people are starving to death. We remember the provocative teaching of Anthony DeMello, one of the 20th century's greatest spiritual thinkers. He fused Buddhist mindfulness with his Catholic faith into a message that resonates today. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.